Welcome to the New Books Network. Benkar argued that modern history has witnessed a dramatic decline in human violence of every kind, and that in the present we are experiencing the most peaceful time in human history. But what do top historians think about Pinker's reading of the past? Does his argument stand up to historical analysis? Well, Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, and we're still really in the midst of it, of it but hopefully towards the end, I was wondering if you could reflect on how has it affected you and your work? and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience? Um, well, it hasn't um, impacted me as much as some of my junior colleagues who have had children. So Australia has gone into uh, almost a complete lockdown. So we have been unable to travel overseas since um, March. Um, what year are we? Twenty twenty. <laughs> 2021, since March 2020, we have been unable to travel overseas and there are still um, tens of thousands of Australians trying to get back into the country. And that, um, professionally, that means for me, I was meant to take up a fellowship at All Souls College in Oxford uh, starting this month. That means I've had to, unfortunately, uh, cancel that fellowship. But for me, other other than that, uh, I've been at home in what we call lockdown. So that means that we are unable to travel more than five kilometres from our house and only then uh, to do essential um, shopping like food and petrol and so on. Uh, So for me, it's kind of been like a forced writer's retreat. But for colleagues who are much younger and who have uh, children at home, it's been much, much more difficult. It means that they've had to do homeschooling uh, via the internet and it leaves them very little time to get any of their own research done. Most of the teaching that we've carried out has been online, so there's been no face-to-face contact since sometime last year. Um, so, for um, you know, I, I've survived it relatively well it's it's kind of like um as i said a forced writer's retreat for people like me who have no real commitments outside of my close my close family and how did you find adjusting to online teaching i hate it Um, (laughs) there's very little interaction there's no real face-to-face um argumentation that goes on um and if that's the future of teaching then i'm glad i'm getting out i'm I'm a few years away from retirement Uh, i think it's i think it shortchanges students i think it gives them a very poor experience i think not being in a class where students can interact with each other and with their teacher is is a really poor way of learning so can you tell us a bit more about yourself so i'm in i'm australian i'm an 18th century uh, french um specialist i um did my first degree here in australia at a university in perth which is on the west coast of australia then i went to uh, paris and studied at the sorbonne paris 4 
um, and did another degree there and a master's and what um, was referred to as a sort of post-doctoral diploma, which you used to have to do before doing your doctorate. Uh, I decided to specialise in the 18th century because I was quite taken with one of my professors at the Sorbonne, uh, Jean Toulard, who was very, it was a very entertaining and very charismatic character. It was also a field that um, was was the poor cousin of the French Revolution, if I could put it that way. Most of the most of the intellectual lights of the 20th century had decided to focus on the French Revolution, and, you know, it's an extraordinarily complex and fascinating subject, And but they did so to the detriment of what followed, which was the first uh, French Empire and the conquest of uh, Western Europe. So I... Th- I sought a sort of niche market, if you like, and did my doctorate. I actually started my doctorate at um, the Freie Universität in Berlin, Um, but I won't go into the story of of being kicked out of the university and having to come uh, come home uh, to finish my doctorate because I I fell out with my uh, doctor father at the time. and. did a, a research uh, thesis on Prussia during the Napoleonic era, and from there, I you know basically went on to do some pretty standard traditional histories of the Napoleonic era until I decided that it was time to rewrite the biography of Napoleon. And when I started, the last biography in English had been written more than 50 years ago. So I thought it was high time to rethink the man that ended up with a three-volume biography that took quite a few years to complete. And it was in the course of writing that biography that I started to collaborate with other people, both uh, here at my own university, but also overseas on the history of the massacre, first of all, and then more broadly, the history of violence. And in 2012, I founded the Centre for the, for the History of Violence at the University of Newcastle in Australia. And um, that's been going now for 10 years. It's a smallish centre, but has been relatively successful and uh, we've made managed to make quite a few contacts with um, lots of other historians around the world who do violence and if in some respects violence is a genre that's just starting I think to come into its own where people are realizing that it's a specific um, methodology Um, and that led me to do a couple of edited books uh, one with Mark uh, unfortunately who can't uh, be here this evening, and uh, but I was also general editor of the four-volume World, uh, Cambridge World History of Violence that came out end of last year, um, and it's it's um, I guess which was um, a pleasure to do. But which I I guess what really surprised me are the number of historians who actually focus on violence. Um, some quite explicitly and some sort of marginally. And that sort of led me to engage with Pinker, but you might like to ask me a little bit more about that. 
Yes, for sure. And before we go there, so I, I must say that's a really exciting career journey. So I was wondering what roles did mentors and your peers play along it? And maybe you have uh, some advice for young scholars? Uh, well, I, w- w- <laughs> I wish that I what I know now I knew when I was a young man. Um, if if there are people who are doing a PhD in history at the moment, then my advice is you can't expect to get a job in the academy that is at university after. You really need to start it because you love uh, doing what you do, which is which is research and writing. I think it's very important for you to choose well your supervisor. Unfortunately, um, I started off with a fantastic supervisor in Berlin, Hagen Schulze, uh, who was um, a lovely, lovely man and a very engaging supervisor. But uh, a year after I started there, he decided, well, he went off to uh, Munich and then later to Princeton. Um, and I was left with a supervisor who was less than enthusiastic about my subjects and with whom I didn't uh, really get on. So it's extremely important that you find a supervisor with whom you get on both personally and intellectually so that there is a real exchange going on during the course of writing your thesis. And the other thing is you need to be very strategic about the topic that you choose And you need to envision your thesis not only as possible articles in the course of writing the thesis, and there is far more demand placed upon uh, postgraduate students these days than when I was a postgrad back in the early 90s. These days you're expected to have a couple of articles written by the time that you're finished, and not just any articles, but articles placed in very good journals. So you need to be very careful about where you publish, and it's all about, could I underline this point, it's all about the quality of your work, not about the quantity. Far better to have one or two very good articles with very good journals rather than half a dozen with what might be considered lesser journals. And then you need to be able to somehow convert your thesis into a university monograph or a book. Within a few years of you completing your PhD, in order to make you competitive for a market that is increasingly difficult to enter. So those are, those are a few uh, tips, but if anybody really wants to talk to me further about that, then I'm more than happy for them to contact me. I'm sure that they're also surrounded by people who sort of know, you know how best to approach these things as well. Oh, these are such important points, and um, really appreciate, I really appreciate that you're being quite honest about uh, your relationship with the supervisor, for example. So it's really uh, good for students to, to hear that uh, things can happen like this, and you can still uh, come out of the other side, if you can put it this way. Indeed. I mean, it, it's, I'm, look, I've, I've heard of many stories of fraught relationships between student and, and supervisor. Um, so you, I, I, you need to be... You need to think very carefully about who you choose um, to supervise you and you need to make sure that, because, I mean, you you do have a relatively close relationship with that person for three and sometimes as much as six years. Um, 
so it's extraordinarily important that uh, that person is is in tune intellectually and psychologically with who you are. So your latest book, The Darker Angels of Our Nature, Refuting the Pinker Theory and History of Violence, was written with uh, Mark uh, Mikali, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? So I first met Mark back in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. It was a few years ago now. He was invited uh, as a visiting fellow to the Centre for the History of Violence at Newcastle. Uh, he's Mark specializes well did specialize in the history of trauma. He's one in fact he's one of the leading lights in the history of trauma. He's really one of the people that uh, that helped shape a trauma as uh, a genre within history uh, many years ago. As, and trauma, of course, is you know one of one of the many aspects of violence. So we were very interested and very keen for Mark to come to Newcastle. And it was um, really uh, by chance that we were talking one day about uh, Stephen Pinker because there was a two-page spread in the local newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, about Stephen Pinker and Bill Gates. And Bill Gates, a couple of years after Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, appeared, tweeted to some history graduates in the United States that this was the best book he had ever read and that he wished he could gift this book to all students who were graduating. And you can imagine that the sales of the book uh, went through the roof again. And Pinker's book had already been quite successful before Bill Gates weighed in, but it was even more successful after and we were familiar with this book, but we found that it was extraordinarily problematic, especially from the point of view of history. And we had we knew that there had been um, quite a few critiques of the book in the mainstream media, newspapers and journals, but usually written by social scientists and philosophers, not uh, necessarily by historians. So we thought it was time to um, critique it ourselves. And we wouldn't have done this if Pinker's book hadn't been so successful. If it had been a book that, um, you know, had sold a few thousand copies and, um, you know, had been critiqued in the media as it appeared, that would have been fine. But this book was a huge success. I mean, it was, I mean, it sold over a million copies, I think, if not more now. And Pink is a bit, has become a bit of a, um, an intellectual celebrity in the process. And he's literally toured the world, spruiking his thesis, uh, which is that um, as we have uh, progressed through history, we have become less violent to the point where the 20th century, with all its wars and genocides, was the least violent in human history. And historians, you know, look at this and take great offence at this kind of simplification of, of very complex problems. So we gathered together a, t a team of, you know, 
really prominent experts in their fields to refute various aspects of the Pinker book. And we could have gone on. We could have, we could have had a two-volume book in the making. But, um, you know, there's so, there is so much in Pinker's book that is easily refuted by historians. Um, but we've, you know, basically narrowed it down to, I don't know how many essays, there are about 17 essays in the book altogether. Um, and we di- and we did it because we want, and you know, this obviously isn't going to be read by all the people who bought and read Pinker's book, but we want an alternative um, understanding of history and violence in history. And the point of, you know, the point of violence in the contemporary world at this time. Uh, something that um, you know challenges Pinker essentially. Now, if I if I could add, um, Pinker's not in the slightest bit interested in engaging with specialists like us uh, who refute his thesis. He's he's very much of, of a mind that he is correct. And that everybody else, including you know people like the people in our book, are just um, you know how can I put it negative negative Nellies who can't see how far humanity has come since the dawn of time. So. If we start about the book itself, so um, you already mentioned uh, uh, who is uh, Steve Pinker, so maybe you can give a bit more of a background about him and why uh, his idea got so entrenched in the popular culture that you felt there was a need for you to write your book. So Stephen Pinker's a psychologist at Harvard University, so he's he's not a slouch, if I can put it that way. He's He was already quite well known before... He wrote this book. He already had a bit of a popular following with a few other books of what might be called uh, pop psychology um, written before this one, including one called The Blank Slate. Um, But Pinker is an evolutionary psychologist, and it's important to understand where he comes from. So he believes that um, – I don't don't want to – mischaracterize his arguments, but I think he believes that humanity, um, that that biology is is very important in shaping individual um, character and decisions, if I can put it that way. Um, And this book has an almost, it's, it's a very positive book in some respects, because he's saying that we have we have come from being nasty and brutish, you know, in the past, in the deep past, whether it's prehistory or the Middle Ages, where everything was violent and where people died young, where people were killed in atrocious manners, uh, to living in a world where the vast majority of people live in peace and harmony and everything is wonderful, and we're heading towards an even bigger and brighter future. So there's nothing really to worry about. That's the that's the gist 
of his argument. Now, I'm, I'm obviously grossly simplifying what he's saying, and I find that I find that argument quite dangerous in some respects. Not only because he, I mean you have to get in, you have to get into the details of the argument, but essentially he's saying one of the reasons why the world is peaceful, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, is because because we have progressed to the point where we are, um, how, how do I put it? Let, let me rephrase that. One of, the, one of the key motivators for this peaceful world that we are supposedly living in is capitalism. What he calls, um, uh, what's the phrase he uses? I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember. I'll have to come back and try and find the phrase. It's, um, it's, something, it's something like um, enlightened commerce. I think very similar to that phrase, anyway, in which in which people have uh, grown richer, uh, in which society is much more affluent, and as a result, people are much more healthy, um, and then as a result, uh, people don't need to resort to violence in the ways that they used to. Now, I find this to be. This, I mean, this is a neoliberal view of the world, but I find it to be a very dangerous one, and I find it to be a very skewed view of the world. We can come back and talk about that in a moment, if you like. But essentially, his view of the world is centred in the West, and he somehow thinks that the, the West is spreading its enlightened tentacles to the rest of the world, and the rest of the world will follow suit eventually, and largely does so because we're all tied into this global capitalist system, which is great for everybody. And I have a lot of trouble with arguments like that. I actually find it ideologically dangerous to think like that. So are there historical data that um, uh, Pinker bases his arguments on? Yes, and this is this is very controversial. So there are the two sets of data that Pinker um bases his main arguments on that we are living in a peaceful world are homicide rates and rates of death in uh, war. Now, the homicide rates, and there's a, I mean, there's been quite a lot written about this, um, and there are criminologists who have been studying the history of homicide rates in the Western world, not in other parts of the world, because we simply don't have the archives or the statistics or the knowledge to do so. So this is very much about the Western world. And these people, and, it, and you know, there's been quite a lot of work done on homicide rates uh, in Europe from about the 1980s to the present. So there are hundreds of little studies of a town here or there for a particular period in time. Uh, one of the main proponents of this thesis that homicide rates have declined dramatically since the medieval period, so from about 1300 onwards, is Emanuel, I'm sorry, I've had a a brain freeze, Emanuel Eisner, who's a criminologist at at the University of Cambridge, and he's uh, done quite a few studies himself. And they argue that homicide has come down in Europe from 
heights of, so you measure homicide by this per 100,000 of population. They argue that homicide has come down from, you know, heights of as high as 100 in 100,000 in the 1300s to today, which is in most advanced industrial countries around one in 100,000, except for the United States, which has a higher rate than any other advanced country in the world. And that rate is around, depending on the period we're looking at, but at the moment it's around five and it looks like it's on the increase and heading towards 10 in 100,000. Now, th- when you when you show that on a graph, it looks indeed as though homicide rates have come down dramatically in the last few hundred years. But behind those graphs are very complex stories of of uh, highs and lows of cities that have high homicide rates in the Middle Ages, for example, and other cities that had no homicide rate. You have countries that had low homicide rates and countries that had very high homicide rates. And none of this is taken, is, is explained in a broader historical context And I personally think, and so do a number of other historians, that the high figure of 100 in 100,000 is a complete distortion of what um, actually happened. And that that figure is actually the city of Oxford in the 1300s. Now, if I could digress a little bit here and just, you know, talk very briefly about those statistics... We don't know how what the population of Oxford was in the 1300s. We have a rough guess that it may have been 5,000, may have been 6,000, may have been 7,000 or more. We don't know. There was a student body that came and went at various times of the year. Oxford was considered to be a particularly violent town because students fought each other quite a lot in the streets and in the taverns at the time. Now, that that 100 in 100,000 figure is based upon one or two or possibly three deaths per year. Now, when you convert that, those one or two deaths, and not every year, some some years there were no deaths, when you convert that into that statistic of 100 in 100,000, it becomes a little absurd. But even if you go into the 18th century, when we know, and the reason why we do homicide is because normally there is a body, there is a court case, there is some records, so we can actually study, um, you know, there's some archives that we can actually get our hands on. There's, you know, many other forms of violence which remain uh, hidden, but I'll, I'll come back to that point in a moment. So, there, so that's one of the reasons why we study homicide. If if we look further along into the 18th century when we have much more, um, I, I guess, reliable records, then uh, we have cities in Western Europe that sometimes had 20, sometimes much lower in 100,000. And that's, I would argue very similar to what exists in the Western world today. If you look at the United States, for example, you have lots of cities that have no homicide rates, and then you have cities 
like New Orleans or Baltimore or St. Louis that have quite high homicide rates. We're looking at 40 or 50 in 100,000. So that if you looked only at those cities, you would think that America is a particularly violent place. If you looked at other cities where there are no homicide rates, you would think, okay, America's not so bad after all. So this, I'm, I guess I'm trying to say statistics give us part of the picture, but do not tell us the whole story. And I think that people like Pinker and possibly also Emmanuel Eisner have oversimplified what is, in fact, a very complex problem. I'll just give you one other example. The, the murder capital of the world at the end of the 19th century was Athens. Now, you might find that a little odd uh, because, you know, Athens isn't really on our our radar in terms of murder. But at that time, at the end of the 19th century, there was a huge influx of male migrant workers into the city. And, you know, there was a lot of violence that went on, usually based around, you know, insults, honour and the knife and all sorts of things. Now, why Athens was the murder capital of the world because of an influx of migrants is... um, It it can in part be explained, but at the same time, if we cross over the Atlantic, we have Chicago and New York, which also had huge influxes of migrants during this period, but which had quite low homicide rates. And then 20 or 30 years later, the situation flips so that Athens is now quite peaceful and Chicago and New York become two of the most violent cities in the world in terms of homicide. So there are, you know, there is there are highs and lows that have to be explained by all sorts of circumstances that take place in that particular time period. It does not give you an a good or an accurate indication, I think, of just how violent a society is at any given time. And this is their argument. They take homicide as though it is a reflection of just how violent a society is at any given time. So Pinker will look at Western Europe and go, homicide rates, one in 100,000. It's it's not a violent society. Same for America. Even if it's five or 10 in 100,000, you could argue, okay, not a particularly violent society. And I think that really skews the picture. I would counter, it depends on who you are and where you live. If you're black and poor and living in a particular neighbourhood in Chicago or New Orleans, then you are much more likely to encounter violence than if you are white and middle class and living in an affluent suburb somewhere else in the United States, for example. So that's, sorry, I'm really going on. That's one a pillar of Pinker's argument. The other is the decline, the supposed decline of uh, deaths in warfare and the, suppo- the supposed decline in warfare full stop since the end of the Second World War. And this too is a very contested um, uh, theory, if you like. Pinker takes total 
deaths in warfare as a percentage of the global population and then argues, look how peaceful we have become because there are far less deaths in warfare in the second half of the 20th century than possibly at any time before. What he doesn't take into account, and a lot of other people, and Pinker's not alone at this, there are quite a, a few other sort of pop historians and social scientists and political scientists who argue the same thing, that there has been a decline in warfare. What I think they don't take into account is disease and medicine. If you go back in time and you look, you know, anywhere in any other century, most soldiers died not from combat on the battlefield but from disease or if they did die from the battlefield, it was usually from a wound that became infected and that resulted in the soldier's death. Now, these days, um, no, no soldier is going to die from typhoid or from malaria or from cholera as they once did in droves in past centuries. Even my period, for example, in the Napoleonic Wars, there were tens if not hundreds of thousands of soldiers who died from typhoid uh, during that 20-year period. When Napoleon sent an expedition to the Caribbean in 1804 to take back the French uh, colony of uh, Martinique, no, sorry, not Martinique, it was um, um, Guadeloupe perhaps, um, I think he sent 25,000 troops there and most died from typhoid, not from fighting. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. But the other thing that doesn't happen anymore is that soldiers don't normally die from their wounds. So, And the amount of time it has taken from the Napoleonic Wars to the present day to get a soldier off the battlefield and into medical care behind the lines has reduced from days and weeks to less than an hour. So the soldiers in, who fought in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan could expect to be, if they were wounded, could expect to be uh, transported back by helicopter to a medical base within 60 to 90 minutes. But they were also receiving medical care on the spot. And that's what saves lives but also if i can if i could add the nature of warfare has changed dramatically since the end of the second world war for all sorts of different reasons when the great powers no longer fight each other face to face and they haven't done so since the second world war except uh, in possibly in korea where the chinese and american troops were fighting each other but they have fought wars by proxy and there have been lots of little wars that have been fought, generally in Africa, also in South America, sometimes in Asia, which have replaced the larger wars. So there are far more little wars that have been fought since the Second World War than big wars, if you like. But those little wars don't normally result in heavy losses on either side because they simply don't have the wherewithal to inflict heavy losses. But also the very nature of warfare has changed dramatically with the introduction of uh, computer technology so that 
it's no longer absolutely necessary to have troops on the ground, as, as was once the case. And we're going to see this increase over the coming generations where AI and drones and um, robots will eventually take over the fighting. So this topic on the use and abuse of statistics in the writing of history of violence was beautifully addressed by Doug uh, Lindstrom in your book. So what other authors and topics do you feature? What I like um, particularly is that by Joanna Burke, who looks at sexual violence This is, I mean, this is this is the thing for Pinker, who, you know, possibly it's because he's a, a male and a white male at that, doesn't seem to take into account the rates of domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse. I mean, he seems to think that they're on the decline. But Joanna Burke, who is a professor of uh, history at Birkbeck in London, and who I think is prob probably one of the leading cultural historians of the day, argues quite the contrary, that sexual assaults uh, and domestic violence are on the rise and that, in fact, most uh, agencies that have to deal with domestic violence will tell you that it has gone through the roof in, in during this time of the pandemic when people are forced uh, to get you know, into confined spaces at, uh, at home. Now, we, we don't know what rates of sexual assault and domestic violence and child abuse really are, because we know that it is vastly underreported. So for Pinker that to turn around and say everything is fine, women are living in a safe world, um, I think is, is really quite outrageous. Um, is, as much as I hate to say it, women are not living in a safe world. Women can't walk the streets at night and feel secure, no matter where you live. It's better in the West than it is in most other countries around the world, but nevertheless, it's not even safe for someone to do so in the West. Um, domestic violence, you know, it could be as one as many as one in three women Uh, who experience some kind of domestic violence in their lives. And rape is, is the same. We know that only around uh, 10% of all rapes are actually reported and handled by the police. Far fewer make it into the courts. And of those, you know, it depends on the country we're looking at, but anywhere between only 5% and 10% of of indictments actually result in a conviction. So those statistics really skew the kinds of violence that take place, not to mention, I mean, you know, I live in a, a country where alcohol is abused by the young, uh, where they've had to introduce laws uh, to close down pubs and clubs at certain hours of the night in order to present in order to prevent violence from spilling out onto the streets and that's worked in some cities um and some hospitals are reporting that rates of admission to um, emergency wards because of uh, violence resulting from alcohol-related uh, arguments have declined by 
you know, dramatically by two thirds over the over the last few months, and the, those are the kinds of things that aren't normally taken into account in police records, and it's the kind of thing that Pinker doesn't want to take into account because he it doesn't fit with his argument. I I, I would be so bold as to say Pinker is extraordinarily selective in the kinds of figures that he chooses to use, and if they don't really fit in with his overarching argument that the world is a less violent place, then he tends to dismiss them. So the other the other um, statistic I could cite, and uh, I think I mentioned it, I don't know if anyone else does, is uh, modern slavery. Pinker dismisses the figures around modern slavery as, as completely exaggerated. Now, why he does that, I'm, I'm not sure, but there are agencies around the world that suggest that um, there are as many as, you know, 40 million slaves, depending on how you define what a slave is, but basically someone who's confined to work for little or no money, as many as 40 million slaves around the world, and many of those, probably about a third, are actually trafficked for, um, for sex. Pinker, Pinker dismisses those kinds of figures and says, well, that's nothing like the Atlantic slave trade that took place, you know, over about 150 years and which resulted in the deaths of 12 million people. That's quite true. The Atlantic slave trade was particularly violent, um, but, there are, but I would argue there are more people now in forced slavery or forced labour uh, Whose, whose freedom has been uh, restricted than there ever was throughout the whole of the Atlantic slave trade. Now that's, that's a form of violence, I guess, that he doesn't want to take into account. For him, violence is just physical harm. But it's much more than that. It's much more complicated than just physical harm. It it's, can be the aftermaths of violence. It can be the trauma that results from violence. It can be the threat of violence. If you're living in an, in an abusive relationship, the threat of violence can itself be a form of violence and control, if you like. There are all sorts of different kinds of things that he doesn't want to take into consideration because it doesn't fit in with his picture that we're somehow living in this beautiful, peaceful world. I'm sort of, sort of, Caricaturizing Pinker's argument, but you know. So, uh, if you could reflect on uh, why is this discourse important for the wider society, and why do we need to address these uh, arguments? We can't. We can't help people who live in precarious, if not violent, situations unless we are brutally honest with ourselves about the kinds of situations they live in and about the kind of world that we live in. To take um, child abuse, for example. Now, it's only in the last 10 years or so that, and because of the courage of people who have come out and spoken about being abused within the church or within another institution, that people have become aware more broadly, certainly in the West, certainly in the English-speaking world, in Ireland and England and Australia and the United States, that some of these institutions, like the Catholic Church, were hiding perpetrators who abused tens, 
if not hundreds of thousands of people. I think a report has just come out of the United States that estimated that the number of children that were abused within the Catholic Church over the past few decades amounted to something like 300,000 children. Now, it's, it's, we're now aware of this, and now that we are aware, we can, we can try and put structures in place that prevent this kind of thing from happening again. And it's the same with things like domestic violence. Domestic violence, we've, we've always known that it has existed. Most countries realise that there is a domestic violence problem, but it's generally when, own, when something spectacularly um, shocking occurs and is picked up by the press that people begin to question it, call upon their politicians to do more about it, and when people start discussing about just how widespread the problem can be. So this has happened in Australia in recent years where the child of a woman was killed by her husband who then killed himself just to get back at the, at the mother. And that every now and then, and, you know, you could, you could also point to India in recent years where there was a few shocking cases of gang rape that made... Indians more aware of the sexual assaults in those countries. Um, it's only when it's only when people become aware of these problems and begin to discuss it amongst themselves openly, and then urge uh, people in power to start doing something about it that we can change. That's not going to happen if we come away thinking everything's fine. We don't need to worry about any, anything. There's no there's no real problem with domestic violence or sexual assault or rape or sexual harassment or child abuse or <laughs> what excuse me whatever kind of violence you'd like to consider if we have if we have rose tinted glasses and think everything is perfectly okay then we these problems will persist it's sort of like the climate change debate unless you are, are conscious that we do have a problem and that we really need to do something about it now, then it's going to get worse. And I, I fear, I feel like Pinker is almost, uh, he's, not, he's not a, you know, in the same vein as some people are climate denialists, Pinker is a violence denialist in some respects. But it's really interesting how sort of our collective psyche is so receptive to this. For us, yes. it's easier to believe it, is it? it yes, because it's a, it's a, a good feel story. I mean, you don't want. To, I mean, most people don't want to watch a movie that has a terrible ending and which is bleak and grim and awful and nasty. They want to watch romantic comedies that have happy endings, and this is kind of the, the scientific equivalent of a romantic, a very poorly written romantic comedy, if I can put it that way. Yes, yeah. This is friends on steroids. I'm sorry. Oh boy. <laughs> so, what other topics do you think uh, should be explored next, perhaps in a second volume of your book? Oh, the, mm, there were lots of other things that uh, we couldn't go into in any great detail, which Mark McCarley probably would have been better placed to talk about. But Mark uh, points to a few things like um, uh, the mass. 
industrial slaughter of animals uh, as a form of violence. I know many people are aware about this, and I know there's a movement away from eating meat and towards um, vegetarianism and veganism. Um, but there are, you know, when he when you cite, I'll just try and bring up the figures if I can. The numbers of um, the hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of animals that are killed often in very poor conditions uh, around the world every year to feed us. That's a form of violence, according to some people. Pinker would dismiss that as uh, not particularly uh, important. Um, I'm not even hundreds of millions. I mean, we're talking about you know something like 70 billion animals are farmed and killed for food every year around the world. So that's about 10 animals for each human being on the planet. And around two-thirds of those are living conditions that um, are really pretty pretty poor. Um, there's, a, there's a chapter on environmental violence, uh, which I find particularly interesting. This is written by uh, Corey Ross, who's at Birmingham. Um, uh, we didn't, unfortunately, we weren't able to talk in any great detail about the First and Second World Wars. We wanted to. We, we had a, an author lined up to do that, uh, but um, unfortunately, at the last minute, he got quite ill and wasn't able to complete his, his chapter. Um, but Pinker, yeah. And we wanted to do that because, you know, the First and Second World Wars were really quite uh, cataclysmic uh, for uh, the world, uh, not only in, the, in terms of the numbers of killed, but um, the impact that had on the, how the world uh, saw itself and was shaped in the post-war period. Now, Pinker looks at something like the Holocaust, uh, which killed uh, six million Jews, but also the Nazi genocide more broadly, which killed anywhere up to 10 million people. It's simply a blip in human history. And I, I find that quite surprising, if not shocking, all the more so since uh, Pinker himself is Jewish and doesn't seem to engage with that history of just how unique and devastating the Holocaust was as an event in human history. And he, he thinks it's a blip because he compares the six million deaths in both in the killing fields of Eastern Europe and in the concentration camps as a, a percentage of the global total of the world population, which I find quite odd. I'm not quite sure why you would do that if you took it as a percentage of the population of Central Europe, then it would be much, much worse. We just know how devastating the Second World War was on some countries, more so than others. I mean, Poland, I think about 20% of the population was killed during the Nazi occupation, um, just as bad in the Ukraine and, and in Russia at the time as well. So... Um, 
And what else am I thinking? I'm, I'm kind of sorry. I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but there's, there's quite a few. Yeah, these are really interesting uh, areas to explore for sure. So from your experience, what is our nature on violence? Um, so this is the big, this is a very big debate, as you can imagine. <laughs> Um, which is which ranges between historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, and philosophers. Um, it's obvious violence has been with us for you know forever since you know going back hundreds of thousands of years since uh, Homo sapiens was uh, first first entered the scene, if you like. Um, and, and there are big debates about nature or nurture. I don't th think it's a case of either or. I think it's a case of both. It's quite obvious that um, humans uh, have the capacity for violence. There's no doubt about that. Biologically, we are quite capable of committing the most extreme acts of violence. But all of that depends upon the broader cultural a context in which that person is living, and I'm not—I'm not talking about people who, are, who might have some kind of deep psychological problem or pathology and go off on killing sprees, which we see sometimes in the United States, or which we see sometimes with uh, serial killers. Those—those those are aberrations to the normal, uh, to the norm of human nature. I would argue. Um, There, there are periods in history which have been quite peaceful, and there are periods in history which have been quite, which have been excessively violent, and all of that depends upon the historical, political, cultural circumstances. So there's, I mean, I would argue that there is no, there's no, there's no it's, it's sort of like saying, well, there's no culture without the brain, and there's no brain without culture so to speak so the two are, are intimately intertwined if we in the west are living in a relatively peaceful world today it's because we are living in societies which are relatively well structured which have good institutions that can support people where poverty exists but not to the extent where people need to resort to violence to res to resolve their problems And violence is not such an issue uh, for the vast majority of people in the West. In the you know violence in terms of you know warfare and mass killings and um, you know neighbors plundering neighbor and so on, as it might have been the case in in the deep past, um, because we have social. Uh, institutions that are in place. And I, I would go so far as to argue that when you do have good civic institutions and where people are confident in those institutions around them, when they think that society is working towards the common good, when they think that governments and the police can be trusted, then we generally have low levels of violence. In those societies where we have communities that are divided, that don't trust their government and that don't trust authorities like the police or the judiciary, then we tend to see higher levels of violence. So people, in other words, 
are obliged to take matters into their own hands in order to resolve any disputes uh, that may occur, if I can put it that way. Normally, over the centuries, and it's you know, it, and in some societies in the past, uh, states have been much more active than at other times. States have assumed the role of violence and take it over from the individual citizen, and the individual citizen then looks to the state to resolve any problems for them. So, you know, I, I, this thing about the world being a peaceful place, is it strikes me like, you know, the, there were books written in 1912, 1910, 1905, before the outbreak of the First World War, which argued that there would never be another great power conflict because it wasn't in anyone's interests to, to go to war and because the economy was so intertwined. And then a couple of years later, bang, we have one of the biggest wars that uh, we've ever seen on the planet. And I feel like it's sort of like the same thing now. It's peaceful until it's not. It's peaceful, and I hope it persists for generations to come, but um, you know, it doesn't mean to say that we won't have great powers in the future that uh, might decide to go to war with each other and which draw in vast uh, parts of the world in their conflict. So I'm going off on all sorts of different angles there. So, no, I don't think it's a question of, of uh, nature versus nurture. I think it's, uh, I think it's a bit of both. Um, and increasingly in the West, I think, because, I mean, you know, what's, I mean, the biggest problem is men. If we're talking about violence, we're talking about men. I mean, murder is committed, for example, by men in what's called their reproductive age. So any, anywhere between, say, 15, 16 years of age going up to the age of 40. That's the vast majority of murders are committed by, the, by men in that time frame. Women murder, of course, too, but it's always in a very small percentage. It's always around about 5 or 10% of any total in the Western world. So men is the, men are the problem. I mean, who 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 again for domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse? It's usually men. I mean, again, women are often implicated, but again, always in a very small minority, and again, always around the five ten percent mark, whether it's murder, domestic violence, or child abuse. So men are the problem, and it's a it's a kind of uh, masculinity, if you like, that creates that kind of interpersonal violence in a normal functioning society. But increasingly, I think men are questioning what it is to be a man, what behaviours are acceptable and what is no longer acceptable. And if that continues, then it might help shape society and control levels of violence. But that's it's never, you know, it's, it's never a, um, a, a gain that is everlasting. That can flip on its head uh, for any reason. But I still find this message actually quite uplifting because here, once we know what to address, we can figure out the ways how to address it. So it's not deterministic. 
like uh, the nature argument uh, would put it. Yeah, we, you would hope so, but um, change tends change on that level tends to be very slow, and I think. Um, and there are all sorts of factors that can can come into play that hinder a real change. Um, there, so I don't know if you're aware of this. There was an Australian uh, high school, former high school girl who uh, tweeted um, about being sexually assaulted in high school by a boy and who wanted to know how many other girls were in her situation. And literally thousands of girls uh, tweeted that they too had been assaulted in high school by boys. Now, these are boys that are often taught um, to, to behave in ways where you wouldn't expect them uh, to Commit an assault, and they might they might not have even been aware that it was an assault themselves. And girls probably only realised some years later that they were in fact assaulted. I mean, in some respects, it's a, it's a question of actually knowing what um, one's what the boundaries are, being aware of those boundaries, being aware of what consent is, for example, being taught what consent is. But even when boys in school are taught what consent is, they still apparently can behave in quite uh, appalling ways. So this is a, I think this is a, a generational shift that, uh, sorry, a shift that takes place that can only takes place take place over um, quite a number of generations, and. Uh, which is never and, and is a shift that that may may never be a permanent gain, if you like. Um, I'm not quite, you know, I'm sort of not quite sure what I'm saying here, but societal change is slow to occur. I mean, we're having the same debates. I mean, you know, I'm a little bit on now. I'm sort of in my sixties, but we were having these debates back in the sixties and seventies when I was at university about and the second second wave feminists were talking about rape on campus. And we're still having the same debates, you know, 50 years later. It was quite shocking in some ways. Yes, for sure. These are such complex issues. They're just not one, one solution to it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? So, so I'm working on a global history of violence from prehistory to the present, um, which is in part a response uh, to the Pinker book, The Better Angels, and I really wanted to uh, offer an alternative view of what history is and what violence is and why people uh, use violence uh, as a tool um, to communicate, I would argue, at certain periods of history more so than at others. Uh, this is a fairly uh, big and vast topic, which is taking quite a few years uh, for me to get my head around uh, because there are huge debates uh, for each period of history. You know, the huge debates in prehistory about whether prehistory was particularly violent or whether it was civilization that created the violence and so on and so on. So it's um, 
I'm enjoying writing it, but um, quite a few years away from finishing the book. Oh, that sounds super interesting. Hopefully you come uh, back and talk to us about it. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd very much like to. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, we'll go to the Bloomsbury site for the book and you can find out about me and my Centre for the Study of Violence uh, just by Googling my name uh, and the Centre for the Study of Violence, it will come up. There are a few in the world now, but uh, the University of Newcastle um, is the only one that I think has that title, the Centre for the Study of Violence. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this truly thought-provoking discussion. Thank you for having me.